Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. feels like where we are in politics at the moment in the Conservative Party is a lot of people wish we could go back to the pre-2016 world. And I think that is a total misreading of what people in the country want and the general revolt against politics as, as usual. There's no future for the Conservative Party as a party purely of those who are kind of doing all right. And if it reverts to, you know, Waitrose, Southern England conservatism, then it's on the way out. Hello, welcome back to the Brendan O'Neill Show with me, Brendan O'Neill, and my special guest this week, Lord Frost. David, welcome to the show. Great to be back. Thanks, Brendan. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you too. It's wonderful to be able to kick off 2024 by talking to you because this promises to be a big political year for the United Kingdom. We have a general election in the offing. Some people are saying it will be in May. It looks like Tory strategists are planning it maybe for November, but it's going to happen. And by all accounts, your party, the Conservative Party, faces electoral oblivion and it looks like Labour will form the next government. That's how things stand at the moment. So it looks like it's going to be a year of change, a year of disruption, a year of interesting things. So I guess I want to start by asking you how you feel about 2024. Do you feel gloomy? Do you think it's still possible for you guys to pull things back? Where do you think things are at politically in terms of the year ahead? Well, it's hard not to feel a bit gloomy looking at what's going on in the world and looking at conservative politics uh, within the UK. But I try not to. I think it's important to not be negative and to realise that we can shape things. Uh, you know, what happens this year is to some extent a result of what we do. And if you give up before you start, then you are half beaten already. So um, it's important to stay positive. But I do think it's also important to be realistic. And the Conservative Party has lost getting on for two thirds of the people who voted for it in 2019. Uh, we've all seen what the polls look like. The party seems in denial about this situation. And for me, looking at domestic politics, the, the question, the big question is, can the party face up to what's going on and do something about it? Let's talk a little bit about um, how we got here. So you mentioned there two thirds of the voters of uh, uh, 2019 are not really interested anymore. 2000, the, the December 2019 general election was obviously huge for the Conservative Party and for Boris Johnson, who was leader at the time. And it was a huge um, issue for the country at large. You know, it was a it, it was another expression, I think, of the revolting sentiment amongst sections of the public who were sick of politics as usual and wanted to do something a bit different. First, they vote for Brexit in 2016, then they take a punt on Boris Johnson in 2019. And it looked like the people were 
staking their claim to political life and desiring to make their voices heard. And there was a lot of talk, you will remember, about political realignment and the Conservative Party becoming the voice of the working class rather than the Labour Party, uh, and Labour becoming much more a middle-class machine or a machine of the bureaucracy. There was all those kinds of discussions taking place, and they still are taking place. But it does seem as though that has run out of steam or has has fizzled out. Do, do you think the Conservative Party squandered the opportunities of 2019? Did they fail those voters, many of whom were taking a chance on the Conservatives for the first time? I think we're in the process of squandering it. I don't think it's been lost yet, but there is a reversion to type going on. That's that's very clear. And, you know, unfortunately, there's a large part of the, the parliamentary Conservative Party that, you know, has reconciled itself to Brexit, but still doesn't really like it, doesn't really like the kind of forces that were liberated by it. And, you know, it feels like where we are in politics at the moment in the Conservative Party is a lot of people think that, um, wish we could go back to the pre 2016 world. Okay, Brexit has happened, but otherwise, let's go back to the, the kind of political forces and alignments and so on that, that were, that were around then. And I think that is a total misreading of what people in the country want of what the 2019 coalition was was all about and the general revolt against politics as as usual i strongly feel there's there's no future for the conservative party as a party purely of those who are kind of doing all right the party of the rich the party of property owners in southern england you know that is not enough to win the election and it is not enough for the country the country deserves better than that 2019 was about reaching out and trying to build other perspectives and ideas into what conservatism stood for. And historically, the Conservative Party has been quite good at that, you know, go back all the way to Disraeli and enfranchisement of the working class. So it's always been good at that, but um, it's got to keep doing that. And if it reverts to sort of, um, you know, Waitrose, Southern England conservatism, then it's on the way out. So on that issue of the Conservatives reverting to type and moving backwards from the 2019 uh, earthquake towards something that came before that to to an earlier incarnation of the party, I think there were two incidents over the past few months that really expressed that quite well. There was the sacking of Suella Braverman Braverman as the Home Secretary because she was too outspoken, she was too right-wing, she was too critical of... um, the supposedly pro-Palestinian marchers. She was too keen to talk about the immigration question, all those reasons that she was eventually elbowed out of office. And then we had the bringing back into the fold of David Cameron, um, a very pre-2016 figure, uh, the old Cameroon politicians making a comeback. Um, And that ruffled a lot of people's feathers, I think, including people in the Conservative Party, certainly Conservative Party members, because it looked very much like um, a kind of outspoken upstart, which is how uh, Suella Braverman is seen by some uh, uh, elder Tories, I think, uh, was being pushed aside. And uh, in came uh, David Cameron, you know, the kind of old guard to to get the ship back on on the straight and narrow. Do you think that was a, an example of the reversion to type that you're thinking about? And what do you think those two cases tell us 
about where the Conservative Party is at right now. Yeah, I do think that they were symbolic. And I've heard from quite a few Conservative MPs that uh, the Cameron reappointment had more of an impact on the doorstep than they thought it was going to. Because he's obviously such a well-known figure, it's kind of symbolised what's going on in a way that perhaps was not recognised. I'm sure he'll be a perfectly good foreign secretary, but that's that's not really the point. The, the point is, um, uh, what does this mean? And I think it for a lot of people, it, it's come back to this sense that, you know, conservatism is for people like us. And I, I feel that's what the Cameron reappointment has, has shown. Suella Braverman was not a person like us. And, you know, a lot of conservatives mainstream conservatives were obviously uncomfortable with what she was saying and the way she was saying it, even though it tapped into what people in the country actually thought about some of these problems. So I think it it was a mistake. Um, and it was a mistake because it's reinforced this perception that, you know, the Conservative Party is the party for people doing all right. It isn't the party for people who want to solve the country's problems. Yeah. OK, I'm going to put you on the spot now and ask you about um, Rishi Sunak and his prospects. I, I often find myself a little bit torn on Rishi Sunak and trying to work out who he is and what he's for. So he supported Brexit, but he also has some pretty technocratic tendencies and is a bit of a managerialist as well. Um, He has made some interesting noises about net zero and some of the problems associated with net zero and the idea that it can be sped through uh, with no regard for its consequences. But at the same time, he seems to lack the the will to tackle wokeness head on. He seems to be a bit cagey about some of those questions and uh, a bit cagey about fighting the culture war. Um, So he seems to be a little bit of a contradictory figure or or difficult to pin down. So what's your take on on Rishi Sunak and, and how much do you think the problems facing the Conservatives now are down to the man currently leading the party or has he just inherited these problems? I think to a large extent he's just inherited them. And, um, uh, you know, I don't know the Prime Minister that well. Obviously, I've worked with him in the past. And I think he is a social conservative in many ways. I think he is capable of tapping into some of the things that people in the country want. Um, But um, unfortunately, he came in, you know, part of the forces that brought him into power were also the forces that I've just been describing, yeah. the kind of reaction against the 2019 coalition. And that has shaped his, his period in power. And, you know, the problem he's got, and I do sympathize to a large extent, actually, is that, you know, the Conservative Party itself is hopelessly divided. Simply changing the leader doesn't change the fact that there there is no real consensus within the Conservative Parliamentary Party about the the right way forward. And until we solve that problem, we're going to have a version of the the dreadful politics that we've got at the moment. The the Conservative Party has always been a broad church, obviously, and I think that's that's reasonable in our electoral system. But 
but it can't be everything. You know, it can't be both pro-woke and anti-woke. It can't be both pro-market and pro-industrial policy and state direction as per net zero. You can't be all those things uh, without just dissolving into mush and incoherence. And I think what Rishi is trying to do is balance all those different things. He's tilting one day in one direction, one day in another, trying to keep this coalition together. But People can see that it's tactics. Uh, you know, people are wondering what's the philosophy behind it. What is conservative Britain going to be like if it were to win another term? And that's the question that's not being answered at the moment. And maybe it can't be answered without some, uh, you know, uh, harsher arguments and um, some difficult decisions within the Conservative Party. I think one one thing that. I find very interesting and a bit troublesome is uh, the question of whether the Conservative Party has the ability to withstand pressure from external forces. I'm thinking of the uh, the media class in particular, which is always putting pressure on the Tory party to get rid of this person, get rid of that person. Um, the blob in Whitehall, which strikes me as increasingly problematic, and I want to ask you about that shortly, um, but if you think about the fact that over the past uh, few years, we've had three leaders of the Conservative Party, um, Boris, Liz Truss, Rishi Sunak, um, we've had three prime ministers. Uh, you know, the Conservative Party is famed across the world, I think, for being one of the uh, most successful political parties in in Western history and also one that is usually very good at maintaining stability and political order in the United Kingdom. That's what it's well known for around the world. And yet politics in Britain has felt a bit Italian over the past couple of years in terms of the churn of leaders and the churn of PMs. Um, is that down to divisions in the Conservative Party? Or is there something else going on as well in terms of um, not necessarily... Uh, very democratic uh, forces putting pressure on the Conservative Party, get rid of Boris Johnson, get rid of Liz Truss, put in, get the adults back in the room. Is there that kind of external pressure on the Tories? And what do you think that tells us about politics today? I mean, there is that external pressure. There always is on governing parties. That's the way modern societies are. And um, if you don't have a conviction about how to... Uh, if you don't have a, your own, a, a strong conviction yourself as a party of what you stand for and what you want to do, then inevitably you are just sort of floating on the sea of politics and prey to the winds and the waves. And I think that's what we're we're happening we're seeing happen. You know, the media is very powerful in in modern politics. Obviously, the mainstream media you can resist it. There were there were times when Boris was in power when we chose not to spend a lot of time trying to uh, sort of be out on the media and defending and explaining, but just to get on with what we wanted to do. And I think in retrospect, they were the most successful periods of the Boris government. Um, you've got to decide what you want to do. You've got to explain and have a good understanding yourself of what the country's problems are and what you're going to do about it and get on with solving them. And unless you've got that forward momentum, then you're always knocked off track and i think that's you know bluntly that's what's what's happening spring is that you warmer temps mean new allbirds styles meet the super light collection the lightest ever shoes from allbirds now in fresh colors they've designed must-have travel styles for when you need to jet 
The lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit makes these shoes some of the most packable styles ever. That means more comfort and less baggage. Take the Super Light Tree Runner on your next adventure. Its cushy, lightweight foam midsole supports every step, and the extra outsole traction gives you the grip to just go for it. The Eucalyptus Fiber Upper adds next-level breathability to keep you going all day. Plus, the Super Light Tree Runner is comfortable and ready to go right out of the box. So, what can you do in a Super Light Shoe? What can't you do is the better question. And because they're super packable, the real question is, where are you taking them? Experience how Allbirds redefines comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24. Here at Spike, we know that many of our freedom-loving listeners would jump at the chance to be their own boss. But we also know that getting started is the most challenging step. Luckily for you, there's a service that makes that step towards independence really simple, and it sounds like this. That's the sound of another sale on Shopify, the pioneering all-in-one commerce platform that will help you to launch and grow your very own business. Shopify supports businesses like yours all over the world, whether you trade in handcrafted cradles or homemade bagels, by simplifying how you sell goods both in-store and on the web. Turning your big idea into the real deal has never been easier. And if you think that sounds too good to be true, think again. Shopify's simple point-of-sale system and intuitive dashboard make getting paid and managing orders effortless. And with the basics covered, you can focus on achieving all of your ambitions. Don't worry about losing your identity. Shopify's endless suite of customization options helps you to constantly reinvent your brand, ensuring that you're always one step ahead of the competition. So why hold back? Kick off the new year with a bold step by getting started with Shopify today. Sign up for a £1 per month trial period at shopify.co.uk slash Brendan, all lowercase. That's shopify.co.uk slash Brendan to take your business to the next level today. Shopify.co.uk slash Brendan. Okay, let's talk about the prospect of um, a Labour government. You wrote recently in your Telegraph column that some people, including people in the Conservative Party, have resigned themselves to the fact that a Labour government is coming. Um I think I've probably resigned myself to that fact too, just looking at the polls and looking at where the wind is taking us. I also do wonder if the Conservative Party might benefit from some time out of office uh, in terms of uh, working out what they're for, who should lead them, what kind of politics should come to the fore and so on. I think they might benefit from some time out. But at the same time, I have no illusions in a Labour government, no illusions in Keir Starmer as Prime Minister. And you wrote that a Labour government would be a disaster um, and uh, conservatives in particular should not resign themselves to the fact that it's going to happen. So give us a sense of what you think a Labour government would mean in its current form under Keir Starmer. What would be disastrous about that for Britain, do you think? So I think it would take us just further down the road that we've we've got back on in, in recent years. I don't think that um, the Labour Party under Keir Starmer... Uh, you know, I'm sure they would like to raise taxes a bit. They'll probably have a go at that. They'd like to raise spending a bit, but bluntly, you know, the country's 
tax base is getting close to being maxed out and whoever's in power is not going to find it easy to go you know to sort of take another turn on the the sort of tax and spend carousel so i think what they'll do is is um go down the alternative route which is regulation and that's very congenial to the Labour Party anyway, in all sorts of ways. I don't just mean economic regulation. I mean regulation of speech, of attitudes, of behaviour, of lifestyle, all these sort of things. So I just think we will see more and more of that sort of hectoring, do-gooding, telling you what to do, what's best for you all the time. This sort of giant HR director worldview of politics. Um, and and it, that that is not how we are going to solve our problems. Mm. This is that's going to make our problems worse, and it's going to sap our ability to to kind of grow as an economy and to have honest debates about what's going on in society and how we solve our problems. So that's why I think it will be disastrous. And uh, you also wrote recently about the impact that a Labour government would have on. Brexit, on the idea of Brexit, the reality of Brexit. Now, when people like you and me talk about Brexit, you can almost hear the Ramonas uh, rolling their eyes and, and, and tut-tutting, you know, saying, get over it, move on, you won. When in fact, Brexit is still the issue that keeps them awake at night. And it is still the issue, it's still the one thing they would love to overturn. When Boris left office, they said, well, now Boris has gone, so must Brexit go. So, you know, it's still something that they uh, a dream of of um, either ending or certainly watering down. And you talked about how you made a really important point, I think, in a recent Telegraph column where you said um, you've never heard Keir Starmer or any other senior figure in Labour admit that they got it wrong on Brexit, that they were wrong to try to force through a second referendum, which, let's remind ourselves, would have meant voiding the votes of millions of people uh, which would have been an unprecedented move in, in our democracy since um, enfranchisement, really. Nothing like that has ever happened, had ever happened before. Um, they've not admitted that they got it wrong. They talk in a very technocratic, workmanlike fashion about Brexit. We can make it work. We, we can make sure it's okay. We can make sure it's not too damaging. So there is certainly a hostility still within the Labour establishment to the idea of Brexit and to the idea that Brexit was a good thing, which suggests they are still out of touch with a significant section of the electorate. Do you think Brexit could really be in trouble under a Labour government? How far do you think they would be willing to go to reverse some of the developments that we've seen since Brexit? Yeah, I do think it could be in trouble. Um, I don't think that um, it would happen immediately, but I think the problem is the one you identify, that um, most people in the Labour Party, mostly in the, the parliamentary, the leadership anyway of the party and its voting base, have not reconciled themselves to, to Brexit. They accept that it has happened, which is not at all the same thing. Um and they would very much like to overturn it. I think they see it as some sort of natural disaster that the country can in time recover from, rather than a positive thing that liberates different forces and allows us to govern ourselves in a different way. So you know, I'm sure if Labour win, we'll see everything that's going wrong attributed to Brexit. 
that'll be the easy thing. You already see a lot of that. And of course, the government is making no real effort to push back on any of this at the moment. That's why opinion is so negative. And then I think what you'll see is bit by bit getting closer. You'll see, uh, you know, alignment on food standards, on veterinary standards, on whatever. You'll see good standards alignment. We've made it easy for them, unfortunately, because of the Windsor framework that gives you an excuse uh, to do all this. Um, that was very, very serious error in my view, uh, but we're stuck with it now. Um, and so I think you'll see that bit by bit getting closer. And then at some point, Labour will be able to make the argument, well, look, we're, we're living with all these standards. We're observing all these rules. Wouldn't it be better to have some sort of say in it? And that's how I think you can see the politics developing. And unless Brexiteers, and you know, this is supposed to be a Brexit government, unless people like us people like the government are prepared to be much more active out there in saying, this is why we did it. These are the advantages. These are the things that we can benefit from. Then we'll lose the argument. And we are losing the argument, in fact, at the moment. That's why I'm worried. Yeah. Um, This might be an obvious question, but what is it, do you think, that explains Labour's lingering hostility to Brexit. I mean, they are uh, like a dog with a bone on this issue. I mean, in some ways, it's self-explanatory. You know, they they were against the idea of Brexit. They think it's a great folly. They think the people were misled and so on. Um, but there is, um, even beneath kind of Keir Starmer's recent confessions to saying, you know, well, Brexit has happened and we, we need to move on. Uh, beneath that, there is still that kind of lingering uh, disdain for Brexit and that desire to uh, soften it and weaken it. And as you say, even within sections of the Conservative Party, there has been an unwillingness to sing the praises of Brexit as an idea. And as you say, the Windsor framework, which you and I discussed uh, last time you were on the podcast, um, in some ways has paved the way for Labour being able to to soften Brexit's hand. How would you explain this ongoing hostility that sections of the political class and the media elites as well feel towards Brexit. They just can't let it go, can they? No, I think, I mean, I think there are lots of things going on there, to be honest. And, um, you know, kind of parts of it, I think, I mean, the good part of it from the Labour Party, the, the kind of honest and reasonable bit is the sort of traditional internationalism in the Labour Party. So it's better when we cooperate with, with other countries. And of course, the counter answer to that is it doesn't have to be through the particular institutional framework of the EU. We can cooperate in other ways. So I think that is you know, a part of part of it from their point of view. But I don't think it's a very strong part. I think there's there's all sorts of um you know a sense that the EU is um historically inevitable and we're kind of standing against uh, the flow of history. I think there are some very deep views about a, a very deep lack of belief in the country that has always been there in the intellectual class, as George Orwell uh, pointed out 80 years ago. Um, there's a, I mean, it comes back to what I was saying earlier, this sense that the best way of governing the country is for clever people to get together and tell everybody else what to do. And of course, the EU is the apotheosis of that. Uh, that's what it's there to do, more or less explicitly, ever since Monet. And um, they like that. 
And, uh, you know, we've seen from, you know, going right back to the Delors, famous Delors speech to the TUC in the 80s, uh, you know, the, the EU has been a way of getting things done in Britain for which there is no actual consensus in Britain. And obviously, Labour love that. So they've seen all these um, hopes, the, all these beliefs about the right way of governing a country shattered with Brexit. And they're now trying to piece them back together again. And they believe them very strongly. And if we give them the chance, they'll definitely have a go at it. Yeah, I think that's that's a really important point. And, and Jacques Delors, who you mentioned there, uh, recently deceased, of course, um, I, I think some of the arguments he made, not only at the TUC, but elsewhere in the, in the 80s, really summed up what drove the EU idea, which was in large part the political establishments, especially socialist establishments, loss of uh, uh, trust in ordinary people in their own demos. And so they increasingly turned towards these committee rooms and unelected officials in the hope that their policies can be pushed through uh, behind closed doors rather than in front of the eyes of the, their own electorates. And uh, I think that's been a, a, a rallying cry of EU supporters for a long time. Um, on that question, I did want to ask you about the other international, or to use a less positive word, I guess, the other globalist factors that still uh, impact on how Britain governs itself and still impede our ability to govern ourselves in some ways. Um, we know about the Rwanda uh, uh, migration policy controversies where our own courts and other um, international treaties have stood in the way of, of Rishi Sunak's government being able to push through certain aspects of that policy. Uh, you wrote in, in your Telegraph column about the various treaties and conventions, the Refugee Convention, uh, the European uh, uh, Convention on Human Rights, the way in which they still have an extraordinary impact on a sovereign nation's ability to make decisions about an issue like immigration, border control, who comes, who goes, and so on. Um, what do you think needs to happen on that front? Would you be as Brexit about those things as you were about Brussels in terms of, you know, Britain should wriggle free from these conventions or certainly should refuse to be governed by any external document that limits what the sovereign parliament can decide to do? Well, I think I have um, not exactly changed my mind, but my, my own thinking has certainly evolved on this over the last four or five years. I didn't think it was that important in 2019 to get out of the ECHR. I, I, I think the ECHR obviously is a big, important, reputational document going back quite a long way. It's quite different from the EU in construction. Um, and I don't think it's something that you know, one should kind of casually just say, well, it no longer matters anymore. But I, so I think it was right to be a bit reticent about it. But I do think what we've seen over the last four or five years shows that in practice in a country like Britain with the particular kind of judicial system that we've got, uh, the very litigious culture, the very strong influence of government lawyers, um, all of this has come together to make it very difficult for us to um, take decisions about the way we run ourselves and on fundamentals like the the borders being the most obvious one at the moment, but it's not it's not the only one. So I do think we've got to at least um, be ready to overrule bits of the ECHR 
if if necessary, to get back control in these areas. And I do think more broadly, we need to reestablish the fact, because it is a fact, that we're in a Britain is a dualist system, that what the British Parliament says is the last word. And um, it is possible to um, go against international laws and treaties if we wish to. It's not illegitimate. It has political consequences, obviously, and you don't do it casually. But in the end, what the British Parliament says is uh, the supreme legal authority in the United Kingdom. And we have seen a drift away from that with the, you know, the debate about the UK Internal Market Act. And we're seeing it again now on the various Rwanda bills. And I think it's very important to reestablish this principle. Otherwise, British governments can sign treaties uh, with the rest of the world and thereby um, sidestep democratic scrutiny in the United Kingdom. That's not what agreeing treaties is meant to be about. And we must reestablish that really important fundamental in the way we run ourselves. Absolutely. And you can see the same distrust of the electorate that influences discussions about the EU, also in discussions about the ECHR and and other uh, international conventions and documents and treaties, because people will often say, you know, how on earth can you call for uh, uh, even a a critical debate about the ECHR? That must mean you want to destroy the rights of people in the United Kingdom. You want the government to have free reign over people's lives. And I always want to say to them, hold on, we established a system of rights for over centuries in this country in terms of press freedom, the right to vote, the freedom of speech. You know, these have been things that uh, Britain's own people have fought for tooth and nail over a very long period of time. But again and again in these discussions, you see that creeping idea, don't you, that, that Britain can't be trusted to govern itself, either because its politicians are too corrupt or because its people are too stupid. So, in all of these issues, even though, as you say, questioning the ECHR is a bit different to questioning the European Union, that same idea comes through, which is that we can't really be trusted and we need these overlords or these adults external to us sometimes to wag their finger and correct what we're doing. Yeah, absolutely. This sense that we all need uh, the sort of platonic guardians in the courts or wherever, or, you know, committees of one kind or another to tell us what we want to do. It's become really deeply established and, you know, much longer and it may be too late to push back against it. And I, I just find it deeply depressing that this country that kind of basically invented a lot of the kind of civil rights and freedoms that you know, most Western countries now try to abide by is thought not able to to guarantee them. And, uh, you know, a, a good example to me is um, the COVID debate, the way the pandemic was handled. Now, obviously, it was deeply, deeply depressing the way that was done and the way a lot of civil rights were initially thrown out of the, the door. Uh, but nevertheless, in the end, it was not possible to stop uh, the British Parliament and a strong force within it uh, from saying we're not putting up with this 
anymore and they wouldn't be shut up and in the end the parliament power parliament and the forces within it took us out of this lockdown mentality i think before any other country certainly in europe so you know i think there is a recent example of where uh, parliament and politics have proved a better protector of people's rights than all the well-meaning, right-thinking people who thought they knew what to do. And it's really troubling to see this getting established. Absolutely. Um, Okay, I want to talk to you about another issue which um, follows on from that in terms of it, it has a global impact that often weakens sovereignty, which is the issue of climate change um, and climate change alarmism. I think they are two slightly different things, climate change uh, uh, maybe uh, uh, is happening. Uh, climate change alarmism is a, is a rather different story that is driven as much by fear and apocalyptic fantasies as by the truth of what's happening in our world. Um, and net zero, the ideology of net zero, we've touched on already, but I want to just ask you a couple of questions about it. Um, we recently had uh, COP28, and it seems to me that these uh, international spectacles are often also driven by a belief that the nations of the world must be made to kowtow to a certain way of thinking, a certain way of behaving. They must cut emissions. They must rein everything in. They must deindustrialize where they can. Um, so again, you have that kind of um, sovereignty interfering ideology, but expressed in a slightly different way. Um, what's your current view on net zero? I mean, it, it was interesting that Rishi Sunak raised some questions about it, but it does seem to me that significant sections of the Conservative Party are pretty much in favour of the net zero idea, even though it's going to be uh, ridiculously expensive, largely unworkable, possibly quite suicidal for a country like Britain. What's your take at the moment on where the net zero discussion is at? Well, I think we are not... Um, in a climate crisis or a climate emergency, the evidence simply does not seem to justify that to me. Uh, so the rational basis for any policymaking ought to be, okay, it's, it's probably a good idea to reduce emissions if we can, but to do it in a um, a sensible and properly paced way and certainly not to indulge in this kind of um, economy-destroying route that we have chosen. And I do think a lot of this is about lifestyle regulation rather than emissions reduction. We could get pretty close to net zero. In fact, we could probably deliver it entirely if we wished through, first of all, uh, modern gas power stations and then a transition to nuclear. That would do most of the job. Uh, we know that's technically possible. But we've chosen this route of going back to the Middle Ages with windmills and other untested forms of power that actually you know, impose extra costs on the system, um, are extremely unreliable, and require demand reduction uh, to to make work. And I just don't see any real rational basis for, for doing this. Um, and somehow we've got caught in the West in this kind of mental construct that, as you say, 
derives from some of the forces we've been talking about, um, which is that lifestyle reduction, demand reduction, behavioral change is the way of solving this problem. And it's caught up with all these mystical ideas about not being a burden on the planet and and so on that are uh, semi-religious in nature. Meanwhile, the Chinese, the Indians, lots of the rest of the world clearly have no intention of paying anything other than lip service uh, to this for the time being. Maybe they think, well, look, we're, we're going to grow first. When we've grown, when we are fully developed like the West, then we'll start worrying about emissions and climate change. But until then, uh, that's not our top priority. And I, I just don't understand why we can't see this. I, I do think the Prime Minister's, you know, that was actually quite a brave move on electric cars and so on, uh, trivial, actually, though it was, it was still a change of direction. But but obviously, he's not been able, shown willingness, whatever, to challenge the wider ideology. And until somebody in the West says, we're not doing this any longer, uh, we're just going to be carried along this conveyor belt to decline. Yeah, I think that that's that's really important. You know, there are some people who are willing to raise questions about aspects of net zero or aspects of the lifestyle regulation, as you describe it. You know, some people will kick up a fuss about the ULES scheme in London, for example, which charges people to drive their cars or um, a failure to build a new coal fire station in some part of England because Greens are camping out. You know, there are there are certain incidents and and events that people are willing to criticise as an excess of net of the net zero ideology, but so few are willing to criticize the ideology itself and to pick apart the entire idea that um, modern industrialized society is itself problematic and sinful and hurtful to the planet and needs to be reined in and controlled. And I think it's that broader idea that really needs to be called into question. Um, I wanted to ask you about, you got into trouble uh, uh, last year with trade unionists because you... Um, you talked about the net zero fanatics in the civil service and in the Whitehall bureaucracy who are particularly, many of whom are particularly devoted to the net zero ideology to such an extent that they seem keen to frustrate government policy if they think it goes against their, I would say, borderline religious belief that um, mankind must, uh, uh, you know, self-flagellate for the sins of industry. Um how problematic do you think the net zero fanatics are? And, and and if that's the case, if there are these net zero fanatics in the in the blob, um, what difference will it make in terms of who we vote into power? Are we always going to end up with green politics, whether we choose blue or red when it comes to the general election? So I think the real problem um, is the fact that we have the Climate Change Act, which makes net zero reductions a legal requirement. We've got the Climate Change Committee and all that bureaucracy kind of enforcing it. So everybody, I, I think the number of actual net zero fanatics in the civil service uh, as elsewhere is probably relatively small. Um, but everybody in the civil service knows that they exist. 
more importantly, everybody knows they're operating within a legal framework that says there's a legal obligation to reduce emissions. So, you know, every step, uh, whether it's building something, uh, you know, investing in something, whatever, has to have this net zero test and has to be consistent with the pathway to net zero and all this sort of stuff. So that's the real drag on breaking out of it. And I, I, I think we are... To break out of it, you've got to change the Climate Change Act and the net zero target and the bureaucracy that's been created around it. And while government lawyers and civil servants are telling ministers, you can't do this because it's illegal, you'll, there'll be a JR judicial review, you know, you'll be taken to court, um, all this sort of stuff, that's what makes it difficult. You need to change the legal framework. It's not as in so many other areas, the whole identity politics area, whatever, it's no good just using words. You've got to change the legal framework uh, so it changes the incentives on people and then things can begin to happen. This is your invitation to a masterclass in engineering and design. Your ticket to go from zero to 60 with the Lexus Performance Line. A feeling this dynamic is invite only. Fortunately, you're invited. Experience the exhilaration of the Lexus Performance Line and some of the best offers of the year on select models at the Invitation to Lexus sales event, now through April 1st. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. This time of year, most of us are setting our New Year's resolutions, but it can be really hard to stick to vague goals like eat better or get healthier This year, I want to really focus more on my nutrition and giving my body what it needs to thrive. And that's why I've started drinking AG1, the convenient and comprehensive daily nutrition supplement. AG1 contains over 70 high quality ingredients in a single scoop. That means it takes seconds for me to mix it with water and then I'm set for the day. I've made AG1 a part of my morning routine and I feel so much better for it. When your body is getting all the nutrients it needs, you're going to feel and function so much better. Meeting your nutritional needs can be difficult and complicated, but AG1 contains a broad spectrum of micronutrients and phytonutrients to help keep me nourished all day, every day. And that means I have way more energy. Plus, AG1 contains rhodiola, magnesium and B vitamins to keep me focused throughout the day without that caffeine crash you get from coffee and energy drinks. One of the best things about AG1 is that it makes sticking to a healthy routine incredibly easy. All you need is one scoop once a day mixed with water, so you don't have to worry about obsessively tracking your food intake or taking a billion supplement pills. Plus, it tastes great too. So if you want to take ownership of your health, try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase. Just go to drinkag1.com slash Brendan O'Neill. That's drinkag1.com slash Brendan O'Neill. Check it out today. Okay, another battlefront that I think is not being um, fought hard enough by the Conservative Party or by um, certainly not by the Labour Party is in relation to what gets bundled up as wokeness. Um, I think we can all agree that's not uh, a perfect term. It's it's more like an ideology without a name. We don't really know what to call it. But I think most people know what you're talking about when, when you talk about this stuff. Um, 
you know, political correctness, uh, SJWs, the um, quite eccentric ideas in relation to gender, sex, race, history, how children should be raised, how children should be taught, all those rather eccentric ideas that have taken hold within the establishment and are not so popular amongst ordinary people. That kind of that kind of politics I want to ask you about, because uh, some people have said that 2023 was a, was a bit of a blow to the woke ideology, particularly on something like the trans issue, for example. We saw uh, Nicola Sturgeon um, falling on her sword. That wasn't entirely down to the trans question. She's also facing extreme uh, party uh, uh, tensions and problems. Um, but certainly her um, fulsome support for the idea that a man can be a woman uh, didn't help her. And uh, we've seen some pretty good victories for so-called TERFs, which are otherwise known as as women who understand what biology is, um, who seem to be uh, doing pretty well at the moment in terms of pushing back against this ideology and its pernicious impact on on women's rights, women's privacy and on children, uh, uh, including in the education system. Do you think there has uh, there has been a successful pushback against the trans ideology in particular and, and the woke ideology more broadly, or is there still a lot of work still to be done? I think both of those are true. I think there has been a bit of a pushback this year, but it, it may only be temporary and is only on one or two issues. It isn't really a pushback against um, the, the wider ideology. I think the reason it worked this year and the reason if we are to succeed in future, it will work in future, is is twofold, I think. One, you've got to have actual debate about things, about the issues, and we did get to that this, this year. Um, for whatever reason, it became possible to express heterodox views about trans issues and so on in a way that it hadn't been in 2022, and that empowered people to, to speak up. That was part of it. Um, and I think free speech is really, really important in dissolving some of this. I do also think that part of the story this year was government action. And I agree the SNP thing wasn't entirely about this, but what precipitated it was Alistair Jack and the Section 35 action that um, brought this all crashing down. And I, I do think there are some areas where the government has just got to say, um, we're not doing this, and to have a um, how would I put it, a sort of reality-based policy in some areas that just is un un unfrightened of saying obvious realities and, you know, not frightened of saying, this is our history, this is British culture, this is what we want to teach, you know, a man can't become a woman, you know, not to be frightened of saying things that most people think. And to to government saying this obviously is very powerful and protective of of other uh, uh, people who want to speak up. I think the big issue I suspect for this coming year is going to be um, um, wokeness in private companies, and you know the Farage debanking thing is the the, the locus classicus of this last year. But you know how do we manage this debate that says, well, they're private companies; they should be able to do what they like against the feeling that you know if you if private companies can in fact deprive people of the ability to uh, conduct normal business that is in practice a very major constraint and with that 
for all the tactical victory that was briefly won over debanking, we've seen the um, the FCA come back quite strongly, and I'm not sure it really has been won. I'm sure we'll see some more of it in 2024. Yeah, I had um, Nigel Farage on the podcast to talk about uh, debanking, and the most extraordinary thing was his ability to connect with the public on this issue because so many people are concerned about you know, the consequences of private companies being able to punish people unilaterally uh, with no due process whatsoever, simply because of what they think or what they say, which strikes most ordinary people as pretty tyrannical and very problematic. Um, In relation to the woke stuff and the trans issue, I mean, I think you're right to say um, that at the moment it seems to be going uh, in the favour of those of us who are reality-based and who believe in freedom and people's rights and certainly their right to to say that two plus two equals four. Um, but I think you're also right to say that, you know, the wind could blow in the other direction if we're not careful. And uh, I wanted to ask you what you think, what else you think the Conservative Party could potentially do to fortify... Um, those within the population who want to express perfectly legitimate reality-based views but sometimes feel they can't because of the marauding mobs or the culture of censorship or the possibility of really being cancelled and even losing one's job or losing one's reputation. Is there more the Conservative Party can do? Or or, or in sacking people like Suella Bravman, for example, who was the kind of person who was willing to put her head up and say, a man is not a woman, um, are they sending the wrong signal? Of course, there are uh, other ministers like Kemi Badenoch, who's done uh, incredibly important work on the trans question and I think has played a, an important role in turning it around. But is there more that the Conservatives can do if they're going to stand up for freedom of speech and reality-based discussion? I think there is. I mean, obviously, time's running out now to do anything much uh, if we don't win the election. I, I, I think that... Um, Ideally, we should devote some effort in the next few years to developing and getting past a proper free speech act, Mm -hmm. something that defines the area um, and the principle uh, in which people can express themselves. Because at the moment, we've got a lot of constraints on speech and, you know, very little that pushes back against it. And there are obvious difficulties with that in getting such an act through Parliament with lots and lots of bolt-ons, as we saw with the um, Online Safety Act. But uh, but I still think the time has come for, you know, if we could get something in the same sort of area as the US constitutional protections, that would be a big help but obviously it's not going to happen soon but i I think a lot of some intellectual effort now needs to be devoted to this and getting it right um so that's the big picture i in the short run i think the government just needs to to act more vigorously and stand up for um its own authority i thought on the the debanking thing um you know again it used words but the action has been relatively limited and probably fairly easily reversed uh, if if people want to. And I think this whole, all these um, um, demonstrations uh, on the streets over the last couple of months as a result of the, uh, the Israel-Hamas war, um, I think have been deeply unsettling to people. And not only that they have um, shown what forces are now afoot within our society, but in the governments and the police's 
you know, very obvious unwillingness to assert their own authority. And to me, that's one of the most troubling things that's happened this this year. And the the apparent impotence of even somebody like Suella Braverman to say, you just we just can't allow this to, to happen. And um that shows how deep the rot has gone, uh, in my view. So what more can the government can do? Governments have got lots and lots of powers when they choose to use them, but they must use them. And of course, there's got to be a consensus across the government to use them. And at the moment, that's the problem. Yeah, I did want to ask you um, briefly about the Israel-Hamas issue. um, Well, particularly about the supposedly pro-Palestine marches. I don't like to call them pro-Palestine marches, because I think if you were genuinely pro-Palestine, you would favour uh, getting rid of Hamas rather than uh, implicitly supporting it, as some of these protesters have done. Um, you wrote an interesting column in The Telegraph. Um, you made the case that um, clamping down on protests like this is not necessarily an attack on freedom of speech. But I, I don't necessarily want to get into that aspect of it with you, unless you want to say something about that. But I did want to ask you about what you've just touched on there, which is what these protests tell us about the state of the country, because it really... It, it made clear to me that there are significant sections of society, especially amongst the younger people, who we who we seem to have lost to the dark side, if, if we might want to put it like that. You know, people who were ex- openly expressing sympathy with Hamas, saying things about Israel that definitely crossed the line from political critique into something uh, much more questionable and at times outright anti-Semitic, I think. Um, they, they were incredibly worrying. And we see these strange alliances emerging between a left that is hyper woke and uh, very much in favor of things like gender fluidity and um, gay rights and and everything else, but at the same time is siding with Islamists who would, um, let's be frank, throw some of them out of a top floor window given half a chance. I mean, that's the brutal uh, reality of it. Um, What have those protests told you about the country and and the struggles we still face if we're going to get Britain back on track? Yeah, I mean, I've found them extremely unsettling, I must say. And I think a lot of people have. And I'm not, even now, I'm not entirely sure kind of why I find them so unsettling. I think it's it, it has shown the existence of forces that I didn't really expect. I think what it has shown is that... Um, there can be alliances of convenience, tactical alliances, whatever, uh, between people who think very different things but don't like Western civilization, if you like, to put it in the, the most simple terms. Um, as you say, uh, sort of Marxists and Islamists don't obviously have lots of things in common, but they can find common ground in the dislike of way things are. And obviously those forces are stronger now. Than they were before. I mean, if you go back to the seventies, seventies uh, and the eighties, you know, there have always been people who don't like the way the West ran itself, and we had, uh, you know, as well as the the kind of uh, Frankfurt School and all of that, we had, you know, the Bardemeinov gang and the Red Brigades and all these these people. They were definitely out there. So, you know, having fringe, unpleasant opinions isn't in itself a new thing. I think they are a bit stronger now. But I think the main difference between 
now and then, and why I find it so unsettling, is that um, the authorities don't seem to have the conviction to push back and deal with them. Um, the people who are in charge in society seem all too willing to, to concede ground to these opinions and say, well, maybe they've got a point. You know, they kind of half believe some of this stuff themselves in places. And I just think the willingness of or the ability of the people who are in charge to say, you know, we are a successful society because of the way we've governed ourselves historically, the strengths of Western civilization, the freedoms, the honesty, the ability to correct and look at ourselves in a fair and honest way, all those are the strengths that have got us to this point. And I sense that quite a lot of our political class here and across the West don't believe that that strongly anymore. And I think that's at the root of why I find all this quite, quite worrying. Yeah, I think that's well put. And to me, it's summed up in the fact that, you know, in, in, in modern Britain, you can potentially be arrested for silently saying a Christian prayer inside your head, as we've seen as a consequence of some of the buffer zones uh, that have come up around um, abortion clinics, but if you chant jihad, jihad, jihad on the streets of London, the Metropolitan Police will make excuses for you and they will tweet out saying, well, you know, jihad has many different meanings. It doesn't always mean war. I mean, that really does tell us that we're in a, a, a sticky position when you have those two situations going on at the same time. Um, OK, David, my final question for you, just to come back to where we started, I guess, which is about 2024 and, and the and the prospects for politics. I did want to just ask you what you think about the new Conservatives project. Um, you've written about why it would be wrong to silence uh, the right wing of the Tory party and why um, the Conservatives need more discussion and more debate. That's always a good thing. I wanted to ask you what you think about the new Conservatives. This is the uh, group that's made up of um, MPs like Miriam Cates, Danny Kruger, uh, Sir John Hayes and others um, who are, I guess, pushing what the idiot left referred to as a far right agenda, but which in fact is a more traditional form of conservatism and one that is more sensitive to uh, the interests of, of certain sections of the population and significant sections of the population. Um, do you think that's an interesting project? Do you think it, it can bear fruit? And do you think the Conservative Party just needs to face up to the fact that internal healthy discussion is always preferable to clamping down on those who you don't like? Yeah, I, I do think it's a, a good development. And I, I personally, I've been quite surprised, shocked even, by the visceral reaction that's come to people like Miriam talking about the family and so on in a way that you know, just seems quite extraordinary and bizarre to me. Um, and I, I, so I, I do think that, you know, kind of creating a group that stands up for social conservatism, for want of a better word, which is not, not to say that, you know, other ways of doing things, you know, when nobody, nobody's trying to clamp down on freedoms, but we are saying that um, certain ways of running ourselves and managing our social life have proven to be relatively successful and shouldn't be chucked out without uh, a bit more careful thought. 
than is happening at the moment. So I do think it's a good a good development. I I I think it's you know they focus more on culture than economics. I suppose at the moment and. The, um, a, lot, a lot of people at the moment are saying the right way forward is to be right on culture and left on economics. And you hear people like Matt Goodwin say things like that. I don't think that's correct. I think it's a recipe for further decline. And anyway, we've drifted quite a long way on left on economics already. Um, I think we've got to find a way of tapping into what the new conservatives think on the kind of society and how we run our sort of social life, uh, as it were, um, while understanding that in the end you need freedoms and markets if you're going to generate growth and provide for a successful country. And I think, I mean, I've been trying to argue for that, but I, I don't think anyone's yet found the right words. You know, it's right on culture, Western civilization, truth-based and all this stuff, but also markets, growth, delivering aspiration and economic power to as many people as we possibly can seems to me where we should be aiming and letting people make their own minds up about things, live their own lives as they see fit, give them the power to do so. And that has been the way Western societies have been successful and they can be again if we do that. Lord Frost, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. We'll be back with another guest and more discussion. Don't forget to subscribe. And in the meantime, keep reading Spiked at www.spiked-online.com.